Okay, I'm glad you're here. We're living in very interesting times. Um, you see, basically, up until relatively recently, people had to uh, concentrate most of their energy on, on sort of the most sort of like brute elements of survival. So just think about it back in the day. People were running from predatory animals and things like that, and or just trying to eke out <clears throat> some sort of sustenance, some sort of food to eat. <clears throat> and today, we, you know, there's certainly dangers and there's certainly, um, there's certainly privation. You know, people have needs that, that aren't met. All that's true. But I'm just trying to get a, a, a big picture, the scale of, of our needs today versus what they were, you know, even just a few hundred years ago or even less than that and for most of history is that most of human life force was focused on just getting through the day, just surviving. And now it's different. And this is one of the reasons, well, I'll just give you an example. Uh, about a week ago, I, you know, it was kind of late at night, there's a big 24-hour uh, supermarket chain here called Ralph's. And Ralph's is, is it's, like, it's like a palace, actually, you know? <laughs> it's a palace of consumer delights. I mean, today we call it a supermarket, but <laughs> it is not a supermarket. It is a palace of consumer delights. I don't know how else to describe it. We've, we've grown very used to it, but, but I have this very, I mean, I've walked in, I don't know, hundreds, maybe thousands of times into this place, but I somehow... The last time I walked in, it was kind of later at night, it was empty, and I just kind of walked in like I was walking into a room of my house, which it is not, but, but somehow that's just how I perceived it. And I thought, look at what is available to me. All of this produce, all these packages of everything, and I can afford everything in this place. Every single thing is just a few dollars. You've got thousands of items, all just a few dollars. I can buy any of it. Now you have to understand, kings did not have the selection that we have today. Kings. I'm talking about people who raised up armies and killed hundreds and thousands of people, right? That they didn't have what each one of us has today walking into a Ralph's. <clears throat> well, this has produced a bit of a crisis, an existential crisis. And what I mean by that is because up until now, we've been so focused on using all of our energy on the barest forms of survival that now all of a sudden we've been blessed with all of this time and all of this wealth, relatively speaking, because most people, they don't have to live in a fancy house or even own a house or anything like that, can afford any of these things. So, so all of a sudden, you have people kind of like wondering, well, if I'm not just supposed to fend off wild beasts chasing me or Huns trying to, you know, pillage, and if I have basically more or less my next meal, more or less all the time, then what am I supposed to be doing with my time? Why am I here? What is all this for? So... So let's just review for a moment. What I'm saying is, is that there is this historic shift to the bigger questions of life on a wider scale because the mechanics of survival have changed. Right? It's sort of like the body, more or less, is safe now. And now all of a sudden, the voice of the soul can be heard more loudly. 
And that makes sense. As we move closer to this evolution that the world is in, and as it's evolving toward perfection, where the soul of the world will become readily apparent, right? And the meaning of life, the meaning of all this will become more readily apparent. And since we have a piece of God inside of us, that's our soul, all of a sudden it's getting kind of like the acoustics are improving, right? All of a sudden we can hear our souls better. Now, I want to tell you a story that happened to me this week. It's a true story. Like I said, it happened to me, so I know it's true. (laughs) Um, So I have a a friend, and uh, I have to give him a name, so let's call him Don. (laughs) His name isn't Don, but I don't want to use anyone's real name here. So Don has a friend... Let's call him Bill. <laughs> Don and Bill are friends, okay? So, so Don, who's a, a longtime friend of mine, and, and, and we, we learn together once a week. We have this like little kind of uh, talk that we do, and some other people come, kind of more geared toward kind of uh, industry people. So Hollywood industry people. Anyway, uh, and we meet at this coffee bee, so once a week. And uh, so, so, so Don's been coming for years and years. And Don tells his new friend Bill, hey, why don't you come to this talk? And Bill says, oh, no, 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 I don't believe in God. And so Don says, no, no, you should definitely come. I think you're going to like it. <laughs> and Bill says, no, you don't understand. I don't believe in God. Why should I go to a class where they're going to be talking about God? And so Don says, you know what? Why don't you just come anyway? <laughs> and Bill goes, I'll think about it. <laughs> so, so Bill decides, you know something? I think I will go. And then he says, okay, so it's at a coffee bean. You know, there are a lot of coffee beans. They're like Starbucks, if you don't know the chain. So he goes, let me look up the one to make sure that I have the right address for it. Right? This, this, by the way, this happened to me this week. Okay? So he looks up the address of the one we meet at. And if you go on the Google uh, search, they'll often have a photograph of the establishment there. He looks up that, 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 that coffee bean, and the photograph is of him sitting there. It's crazy, right? Now, how did that happen? Because Don and Bill had had coffee there a while back together, And while they were sitting there, the Google car that takes pictures drove by them, and they commented on it at the time. And while they were talking, they said, um, you know, Bill said, you know, I think I would believe in God if he just showed me a sign. (laughs) So... So, Bill comes, and I'm meeting him for the first time, yeah? And, and, you know, like, Don is excitedly showing everybody the picture of the two of them, right? Because the photo is of, of the two of them. And I say to Bill, because Bill is saying, you know, very openly that he doesn't believe in God and everything like this. So I said, because I wanted to know, I said, how do you understand this? I I just wanted to hear how he integrates that occurrence with with that. And he was like, "Uh, well, um, I don't know. It's it's beyond. Use the word, it's beyond. And he said some more, but he really said it's it's beyond. 
And I said, okay, so on the one hand, you're saying you don't believe in God, and on the other hand, you're saying it's beyond. How do you put those two thoughts together? And he said, huh, I guess those do sound like a contradiction, don't they? (laughs) And I was like, yeah. (laughs) But I kind of pressed him further because he was the recipient of what seemed to me like something fairly miraculous that it just felt like, you know, let's, let's just see where this conversation goes, right? So he, you know, very, you know, to his massive heroic credit, was a lone soldier in the Israeli army, which means that he enlisted and became a soldier in the Israeli army when he didn't have to, right? He's not required. So anyone who does that is a hero, is a hero of the Jewish people. So he's a hero of the Jewish people, no, no question. And um, I said, well, look, you know, you, you know, anyone who has the personality to enlist when you don't have to enlist, right, that, that, that means that there's part of you that feels like I have to take control, right? This is our responsibility to defend the land. I personally am obligated in this, and I have to take control, right, on a, on a personal level, you know, in terms of my personal responsibility. So I said, but, but there are forces beyond, right? Like, so I understand the idea that if, um, if a person really needs to, to own it, it's sort of in conflict with this idea that there's another force out there that you can never completely control any, everything, right? So, so I, I, just feel like there was like a kind of like the psychology of it was just kind of interesting to me anyway. Just you know, just just on the on the on the surface of it anyway. And I said, look, when you when you go into battle, you have to do reconnaissance. You have to figure out like w- what is around you, so that you can defend against it, right? So I said, but the battle, so to speak, is not just between. Israel and its neighbors. The whole world is a battlefield. Like, there are forces all over, and you have to do reconnaissance, like right here in Los Angeles. And there's a force outside of you, God, (laughs) who's showing you a picture of you where you're going. And saying, I know you. (laughs) I've been keeping track of you. Like, what about that? So, he says, I have a big issue with the fact of God's hiddenness. Why is God hiding? Meaning, you know, with all this stuff going on in the world and things like that. And I said, back to him, I said, I said, imagine you're on your wedding night and you hide from your bride. I said, do you want her to find you? (laughs) And he said, on my wedding night? Yes. So God is, yeah, it's true. He's hidden. And by the way, you know, on a mystical level, we say that God created the world from the Hebrew letters. And it's it's not like he took, you know, the letter Dalid and the letter, you know, Gimel and hammered them together. We're talking about divine energies right now. It's a, it's a deeper level. It's a deeper level. And he synthesized these divine energies and created the physical universe, kind of like the Einsteinian equation of E equals MC squared, how energy becomes mass. God's light, he took an aspect of his light and turned it into the physical universe. You know, Einstein expressed this idea that that the rabbis have had for thousands of years, right? So, 
So when we talk about creating the world out of the letters, we're talking about it from the divine energies and things like this, right? So, so that's why you can look into the Hebrew letters and you can get an X-ray into creation. So the word in Hebrew for world, olam, the root, the Hebrew root of that word for world is ayin lamid mem, which means hidden. So isn't that interesting that the word world and hidden is the same? Because God is hidden in this world, right? But God is hidden in this world not to stay hidden, like the person hiding from his bride on their wedding night. The hiding is for the purpose of the revelation. That's our role. Our role is to reveal what's there. See, it's, it's, it's very important because people who don't really think about these things that much and don't have much of an understanding of it, they kind of think that through my belief, through my prayers, I will manufacture the existence of God. But God's already there. Whether you believe in him or not, whether you accept it or not, if you hotly deny it, doesn't make it any less true. God's already there. Our job is just to reveal his presence. And how do we do that? We do that through loving each other, basically, by keeping the Torah mitzvahs. That, that, that reveals God's presence in this world. Um, I'll tell you, we just learned about Shemitah. Shemitah means that you work the land for six years, and on the seventh year, you let the crops rest. Okay? Um, and you let the land rest, better put. Okay? By the way, there's a, there's a wonderful macro structure that I'll just tell you. I'll just go quickly through it because I want to tell you a, a, a miracle story from the last uh, conflict between Israel and, and Gaza, okay? That had to do with Shemitah, with the, with the theme of revealing, okay? In fact, why don't I just tell you that? Otherwise, we'll get off track. <laughs> We're about to go into the structure of the universe. Let's just pull back, pull back. Okay, what happened was, during this conflict, there was a, um, the Shemitah year was about, to, was, about, was about to come up, which means that you can't till the land for, for, that, for, that, for, that, for that year. So what um, the, the Jews of this particular Moshav, this particular settlement did, which was an agricultural settlement, was... They harvested land, much more land they nor- than they normally would, knowing that the following year they're not going to be able to work the land. And because they harvest in an area, because of the Shemitah year, only because it was the Shemitah year coming up, because they harvested part of their property that they normally don't touch, they revealed a tunnel that the Gazans had dug underground to send soldiers and to to create a, a, a massacre in that village. And it was only because the Jews of that settlement kept the laws of the Shemitah year, of letting the land rest in the seventh year, that they harvested the crops early, and a tunnel was revealed. Here you see, like, the amazing wiring of the mitzvahs and the universe, <laughs> that there are connections between doing particular mitzvahs and other things becoming revealed in the world that isn't intuitive. Right? So lives were saved. Lives are absolutely saved because of the Shemitah year. Amazing. That's an amazing thing. Okay? So just, I want to make this side point, but I want to get back to the whole idea of just understanding why we're here and just grappling with the existence of God and things like this, okay? So, so you have six days of the week, and then you have the seventh day of the week, which is Shabbos. So six and one, okay? Then you have the six years that you work the land, and then the seventh year, you don't work the land. Six and one again. But now instead of days, we're talking years. Then you have the 6,000 years of creation and the 7,000th year of creation. Again, six in one, the messianic period. Do you see how that works? 
And then Kabbalistically speaking, you have this upper, the lower seven spherot. You know, they call it the Zion Tachtonim, if you want to get fancy about it. So you have the six lower spheros, and then the seventh, Malchus, six and one again. So you see this, this, this pattern is very, very cosmic, and it permeates not only time, the days of the week, but space, the land, and soul, the sphere of the energies of creation. Amazing, amazing thing. There's this rhythm to creation. It's a rhythm. And by the way, we mentioned, I think, last week in the Kuzari, that um, one of the arguments that all of humanity came from a common ancestor is the fact that all over the world, different cultures have seven-day weeks. Why would you have a seven-day week? Like, that's... Why pick seven? Like, have no weeks, or have a one, one year. You can see the rotation of the, the earth around the sun, right? Have, or just have one year. Why break it down into weeks at all? Or have 14-day weeks, 17-day weeks. It's odd that there's seven-day weeks everywhere. That's odd. That suggests a common ancestor, says the Kuzari. So, um, but I want to get more into this idea. Let's return back to this idea, which is that historically speaking, we've never had so much time on our hands. I think that this is one of the reasons why there's so many addictions today. You can, there's like lists and lists and lists of addictions that people have today. You know why? Lots of time. <laughs> Lots of time to figure out what am I supposed to be doing with my time? Right? So that's, that's, a, that's a negative example of it. The positive example is that the, the soul is yearning to understand more. Okay. So, so what I want to go into is just this idea that when, when Moshe shows up to free the Jews, when the, when the time of the redemption comes, Moshe comes and all the Jews are slaves in Egypt. And what does is, what is Pharaoh do? Pharaoh increases the amount of work that they have to do. And the Ramchal points out, and it says that they didn't listen to Moshe because of katsaruach, shortness of spirit. In other words, when, when the redemption is coming, the Yetzirah, the, the, the other side, the, the side that's opposing you know, you know, good coming into the world, and remember, there's only one force in the world, God is one, right? But another force comes into the world to try to distract people from the opportunity that's available. Tries to keep you very, very, very busy. Okay? So, so most people are too busy to think about the larger questions of why am I here? And I think this is an even more profound question. Why is there even a world? See, that blows my mind. No one made God create the world. <laughs> All of us just kind of think, well, here I am, and this is me, and I'm in the world, and of course there's a world. Of course there's a world. What do you mean, why is there even a world? Of course there's a world. Well, why is there a world? Oh, that's an interesting question. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Well, it seems whoever made the world, whatever made the world, seemed to have put a tremendous amount of effort into it. Doesn't that suggest that there's a reason for it? Like, can you imagine you elaborately, you, you, you handcraft letters from like, you know, like beautiful fine paper, happy birthday, right? And you hang them all over and you, and you bake cakes and everything like that. And then someone walks in and they say, whose birthday is it? And they say, oh, is, is someone having a birthday? <laughs> it's like, well, why did you do this? <laughs> You think all this was done for, for no reason whatsoever? Does that make any sense? So, 
So this is one of my favorite thoughts, and I think it's hilarious. But people don't offer it as comedy. <laughs> people offer it as, whoa, let me, I'm going to blow your mind right now. Okay, that, that's, that's the spirit that this next thought is, is offered in. Okay? Which is, well, wait a second. You see, the question is, how did this universe come out of nothing? Like in, 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 in Torah language we say, yesh miyayin, something from nothing. How did something come out of nothing? This is, this is the great question. And I was talking with one of the top physicists in the world, and he said to me, we don't know. Science does not have the answer to the question of how did something come out of nothing. They do something called, so people do something called kicking the can down the road. So that's a, an expression that you hear sometimes in Washington, D.C. circles, where they can't solve a policy problem, so they just kind of delay it. They go, okay, you know, the next generation will figure it out. We'll raise more taxes. We'll solve it that way. Well, then how's the, how are they going to pay off all the federal debt? They'll figure it out. That's called kicking the can down the road. When you don't have the answer to a question, so you come up with a, de- a way to delay it, to delay it, okay? So here's my favorite version of kicking the can down the road, okay? Which is that science today says that the world started from the Big Bang, right? So, so, and by the way, Torah had this idea thousands of years ago. The idea that the Medrash says that God took a very tiny particle. In the, in the, in the language of the, of the rabbis, they say the size of a mustard seed, which I love because, you know, it's just so, like, <laughs> they're talking about advanced, like, quantum physics right now, and they say, the size of a mustard seed. And Rabbi Sutton pointed out something that I I think is an excellent point that we should bear in mind. This is a great illustration of it, is that the rabbis of old didn't have the vocabulary of modern physics to express the thoughts that they had. In other words, their thoughts were completely Nobel Prize winning genius thoughts and true. But they're speaking in language like mustard seeds, you know? So, like, if you are unlearned and, and with a closed heart, you say, oh, I said, well, they're talking about mustard seeds over here. No, they're talking about astrophysics. <laughs> but anyway, that aside, just so you can appreciate, you know, what, you know, the quality of, of, of what these thoughts are. They say that God took a tiny particle, right, the size of a mustard seed, and then he expanded it out into the physical universe. That's the Big Bang, folks. So the question is, my question is, so someone says, you ask someone, well, where did the world come from? Well, you know, it's from the Big Bang. Okay, but where did that first particle come from? And where did the fabric of time and space to support that come from? Because there was no time and there was no space. So you want to say there was an ex- just an explosion, a spontaneous explosion? Where did the materials that created the, ma- the explosion come from? And then my friend added something awesome, this physicist. Where did the laws of physics come from to channel the energy of that explosion into such an ordered universe that we have around us? There were no laws of physics. You can't assume the laws of physics. So the answer is, according to science, we don't know. But now some fancy people come, and this is the idea that I wanted to tell you before, and they want to kick the question down the road. And the idea is to give you something, a thought that's so mind-blowing that you won't ask any questions on it. Okay? So here's the thought. No, 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 you don't understand. You don't understand, you don't understand. There are an infinite number of universes, and this is just one of the infinite number of universes, but what about all the order that we see around us? You're saying that's random? 
in an infinite number of universes, there will be one where this type of order occurs randomly. Whoa. (laughs) Okay, now here's my response to that. (laughs) You don't want to believe in God because you can't see him, but you are... You don't want to believe in one God. So instead of believing in one God, you are willing to believe in an unseen, infinite number of universes. And where did those come from? (laughs) You see, you see, at a certain, at a certain point, so you say, well, okay, now you got me. I don't know. I don't, I, I don't know. So, so, so we do know. We do know. We, 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 we do have an answer. We say God did it. We say God did it. And, um, and you have, in one explanation, the answer to absolutely everything. I think they call that Akun's razor. If you can have one answer which answers pretty much everything, then it's likely to be the answer. It's a very sort of elegant, it's a Greek kind of idea. So, so it's funny because when you think about it at length, God is actually the clearest answer. Like you start off thinking, well, wait a second, ah, that seems so abstract and so way out. I don't know if I can believe in that. But once you start broadening your mind and realizing all the different possibilities, you realize, no, 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 that's actually the most logical, simplest answer. Now, keep in mind, I was, I was talking with someone not, not long ago, and, you know, very sincere person, extremely sincere, and really, really wants the truth really, really does, and, and said, you know, if I, if, if I can have this proven to me, then, then, then I can accept it. And a very intelligent person. And I, I said to them, I gave them some bad news. I said, listen, God deliberately, by design, created the world, structured the world in such a way where his presence cannot be proven. You will never find your proof. That is by design. That is by design. Because the glory of a human being is free choice. This whole world revolves around free choice. Everything revolves around free choice. And if you don't have free choice, the whole purpose of this entire world has been taken away. But once you choose to see things that way, it will become obvious. Okay, there's still mysterious things. There's still suffering. There's still horrible things that happen. There's there's no question about it. Things that we can't explain. But we can't make our entire lives rest on those few things that we can't explain. You know, as I love to say over, because I think it's such an important teaching from the Kutzker Rebbe, the Kutzker Rebbe said, I would never worship a God I understood. Because if you completely understand God, then you're also God. So what do you need God for? So do, do you understand that? One of the things that makes God God is that you don't understand Him. And if you completely understand Him, He is not God. So one of the preconditions is that you can't understand him. Otherwise, God isn't God. But we're so used to needing everything to make sense to us that to the extent that it doesn't, then, oh, wait, wait a second, wait a second. But really, what, what, what does make sense, you know? I mean, some things, I guess. It's like, I, I heard someone say one time, do you only take aspirin? Would you, do you only take aspirin because you know how it works? 
Like, do you only, like, like, oh no, I'm not turning on my computer because I'm not, I don't know how it works. <laughs> we are freely engaged with lots of things that we don't know how it works exactly, but we are very happy to be partners with them. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. First explain to me exactly how the ignition in that Tesla works before I get in there. Um, I'm a very smart guy, you understand? <laughs> I don't just get into cars. <laughs> right? So now let's talk about atheists, because I think there's a certain, you know, it says in the Talmud that you can laugh at idol worship, but not at idol worshipers. And this is a very beautiful sensitivity. In other words, don't mock people. People are human beings. They have feelings and, and, you know, they're God's creations too, just like you are. You can't mock people. But if there's an idea that's false, you can mock the idea. Do you understand? But not the person. So, So not making fun of atheists, but making fun of atheism. Let's look into that for a moment, okay? So, as I understand it, an agnostic is someone who goes, maybe yes, maybe no, not so sure, maybe, I don't know. That's, that's an agnostic. An atheist is like, oh, no, no, I know God doesn't exist. I know God does not exist. Now, the funny thing is, is that you can't, prove the existence of God that is by design. That was God's idea. That's not our idea. That's not our failure. That's not God's failure. See, some people think God is weak because if God were stronger, he'd be able to convince me that he exists. So God must be weak. And if God's weak, what do I want to worship a weak God for? Right? Do you, do you hear that? I want to say that again. That's a very, very powerful idea. A lot of people think, they they don't know that they're thinking this, by the way, but they do think this. They think God is weak because they say, if God were stronger, then he'd be able to convince me that he exists. And since he can't convince me that he exists, he must be weak. And what do I want to worship a weak God for? Do do you understand? Again, this is a, a subconscious thought that people have. What they don't realize is that by design, God made it that we had to find him. That was God's idea. That's not a flaw in God. That was God's plan. Okay. So, God can't be proved, but he also can't be disproved. So an atheist comes along and says, I know that God doesn't exist. But you can't know that God, you can believe that God doesn't exist. You can't know that God doesn't exist. All you can do is believe. So that means atheists are believers and religious people are believers. (laughs) So you have believers and believers. But an atheist doesn't just believe God doesn't exist. He knows that God doesn't exist, which means that atheists are religious fanatics. (laughs) Do you hear how that works out? It's very funny, actually. So, so, so what can we do? What can we do? How are we going to solve this? How are we going to solve this? I, I, I would love to see a, just a, you know, when I asked that person, um, oh, by the way, so, so how did that class end up with, that, with, with Bill and Don, our made-up names, right? How did, how, did, how did it end up? So Bill, the guy who came for the first time, and I you know, asked him all these questions, at the end of the at the end of the talk, he said, uh, "This was a really interesting class." <laughs> and then I gave him a hug, and he's like, "Yeah, I think I'd like to come again." So, who knows? 
who knows, who knows. But, you know, the, the least that we can do is think. And there's a principle in the Talmud, a very beautiful principle. Actually, it's also scary. It's beautiful and it's scary at the same time. And I've actually seen both parts in my life that are true. Which is God, it says in the Talmud, God leads you in the direction that you want to go. So that means if you want to do like, you know, not so nice stuff, God will actually create opportunities for you to do not so nice stuff. He will. He'll introduce you to those people. And if you want to do good things, God will introduce you to other people and give you other opportunities. And it all goes from what's going on inside of you, the opportunities that are put in front of you. Right? So, so I would suggest... At whatever level we're on, maybe you don't believe, maybe you believe a little bit, maybe you're keeping this number of mitzvahs, maybe you're keeping a lot of mitzvahs. I don't even know. Wherever you are, Torah believes in lifelong growth. This is really important that you never stop growing. At whatever level you're at, you never stop growing. And I'll tell you just one of my all-time, 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 all-time favorite teachings, also from the Kutzke Rebbe, which goes to this, and maybe we'll just finish up on this. So the Medrash says that one who grows old is like an ape. Okay? So... That sounds strange, right? Because obviously the Torah is not in the business of insulting people, especially older people who deserve respect. You have to stand in front of an older person. So then what is, what is the Medrash saying? One who grows old is like an ape. So the Kutzker Rebbe explains it in a very deep, deep, searing way. He says the following. That you know what an, you know what the the nature of an ape is. Like an ape is like a gorilla, right? It it copies you, it it imitates you. And in fact, this this aspect of apes is so universal. And this is an ancient teaching already. That in English, if you look up in an English dictionary, to ape a p e, like the verb to ape actually means to copy. So this, this, this has been known and is entered even into the English language. Okay? So let's revisit the teaching. One who grows old is like an ape. So the Kutzkarebi says, and I'm going to put it in my words, that, that you know what, either consciously or probably more often unconsciously, a person reaches a certain stage of their life and says, you know what? This is me. This is me. And then you're ready for this? They go through the rest of their lives as an imitation of themselves. They live the rest of their life copying the person who they once were. This is... This is terrifying and heartbreaking all at the same time. And, it's, and it is what the Kutzkarebi is saying that the Medrash is explaining is the definition of becoming old. You know what it means to become old in Torah? You live out the rest of your life as an imitation of your old self. That's, that's the definition of becoming old. Which means, by the way, that you can have someone who is 11 years old and by Torah definition, by this idea, is old, and you can have someone in their 90s by Torah definition who's young. It just depends on how you are meeting the next day and how you are seeing what it means to be alive in this world 
and what it means that there's even a world. It's a really deep question. Yeah. No, <laughs> so the question is, how do you how do you how do you relate to someone who's really just absolutely closed off and even anti, in a way, right? So I think, um, yeah, it's you know, it's 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 a giant question. You know, I'm 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 reminded of a story uh, of I think it, it's told about the Brisker Rav and and some of his students who. Like after World War One, went off the derech. So they, you know, they were learning in you know one of the world's greatest yeshivas, and just because of all the tumult in the world, and you know the World War One, in its day, was called the war to end all wars, right? Can you imagine how terrible it must have been? And then came World War Two. I mean, I think that we're still kind of haven't wrapped our minds around. And then you had the communist. Um, you know, uprising, where something like tens of millions of people were killed. I want to say 60 million. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but tens of millions of people were killed by Mao. Okay, and then you had Stalin's, where really, I mean, we're talking about outside of World War One and World War Two. It is ridiculous, like, like, historians will look back at the 20th century as this blood-soaked clod of time. You know, it's, it's, and we, you know, we're right in the shadow of it, right? And who knows what's ahead of us, God forbid, right? So I, I saw something. We were talking about it yesterday. Claude Landsman in the documentary Shoah described the Holocaust in this very sort of like, kind of like jarring way. You ready? He talked about it as the intersection between hatred and technology which is like, wow, that's a very interesting way of saying it. In other words, the hatred's always been there, but now they finally have the technology to act on the hatred. That's, that's a wild way of saying it, you know? And unfortunately, the technology has only improved since then, right? So anyway, after World War I, there was a lot of, um, you know, in America, they called it the lost generation, Right, Hemingway and Fitzgerald are writing all about it. Like all their novels take place in the in the aftermath of World War One, where people just looked at all of the death and misery, and they they questioned everything. Okay, so you had it in the Jewish world also. Whatever's happening in the outside world is usually going on in the Jewish world as well. And people left Torah, and some students saw the briskarab. I don't know what the occasion was. They seem to have just kind of seen each other on the street or something like this. And, you know, it was kind of clear, I guess, just from appearances or whatever it was, that they were no longer, you know, yeshiva students, you know, like they had been when he knew them. And so they said to the briskarab, we, we want to uh, ask you some questions, you know. And uh, the briskarab says, you know something? You can ask me anything that you want to ask me. And... I'll be happy to answer, but I want to know, did you have these questions before you decided not to believe? Or are these only questions that came after you decided that you didn't want to believe? See, a lot of times, questions are a big masquerade. They're not really questions. They're defenses. Of, of a decision that's already been arrived at. Which means that at that point, that level of a conversation, the Brisker Rab was, you know, is a very brilliant, holy man, and he understood, if I'm speaking to a closed heart, let's just get that out at the outset. So, so then it boils down to a person's heart. Is the person's heart empty, closed or is it open? And the nature of a person in general is to have a closed heart. Forget about all the suffering that people go through and disappointments and heartbreak and everything like that. That stuff just closes a heart further. <laughs> you understand? We're already starting with the idea of a closed heart. So, you know, you have the classic teaching again from the Kutzke Rebbe, 
It says in the in the in the Shema, right? In the in the Torah, it says, God says, take these words, right, about the oneness of God, right, about loving God, and put them on your heart, right? Classic teaching. It says, Alavavecha, put these teachings, these words, on your heart. So, so you would say, well, wait a second, on your heart? No, no, no. It should say, put these things in your heart. So why is the Torah saying put them on your heart? It's an odd phrasing. So the Kutzker Rebbe says, I heard Reb Shlomo phrase it this way. He said, let's face it. How often is your heart actually open? So the Torah is telling you put them on your heart so that at those rare moments when your heart actually opens, the words will be there so that they can drop in and fall into your heart. So then the question is, what creates an open heart? Since no progress is ever going to be made until the heart becomes open. And Reb Shlomo says that the thing is, is that most people haven't been touched. They haven't had that experiential moment where their heart opens. And it's an experiential thing. It's not usually an argument. It could be a song. It could be some phenomenal, you know, the birth of a child, a sunset, something. But that's usually what does it. And until, and, and then you can perhaps create an environment for a loved one where it could happen. Right, but it has to be that experiential thing, and it's usually not going to come through um, any sort of uh, intellectual exchange, because it's that's that get back to the to the Briska Rob thing. It's just going to bounce off if if those questions that they have are really already answers. Yeah. 